talks, and I thought, well, this might be as good a time as ever since we talked about it on Wednesday. Maybe I can talk about it again on Sunday um, because I think it's a very practical chapter. Um, I don't know about all of you guys. I imagine some of you may share in this. Sometimes spiritual things, uh, the nature of them can be, as our, we sung about, like intangible, invisible. And so there can be a challenge in our lives to figure out like how to make them tangible or how to live them out. Um, and I think Acts chapter 19, almost from top to bottom, is something intangible, something spiritual playing out in really tangible, meaningful ways. And so I think that's why it resonates with me, and I think that's why it's helpful, is because it ends up showing us some practical sides of spiritual truths. And so uh, that's what I want to talk about today. And so there's this phrase at the end of verse 20 that we'll talk about when we get there. That is what I ended up kind of titling this lesson for. Um, The only reason I share the title with you instead of just letting it stay here on my sheet of paper is maybe it's helpful in knowing kind of where I'm going with this. So I I titled this, uh, Is the Word Mighty in Me? Um, And so I want you to think about that as we go through this. We'll develop what that means a little bit, but just be thinking personally. I, I'm tempted sometimes to be thinking about the people around me when I'm listening to someone talk about spiritual things. Um, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm not the only one that does that, but um, I'll be thinking about person A needs to hear this, or person B. Um, I know they struggle with this, so I hope they're listening. Um, but think about yourself. Um, is the word mighty in you? Uh, I want to read this text again. Just for emphasis, um, Josh did a good job reading it for us, and I appreciate him being willing to do so, and I'm going to repeat it because um, I want us to zero in with that question in mind. Is the word mighty in me? Beginning in verse 11 of Acts 19. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had believed, uh, sorry, who had practiced magic art brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it uh, came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right, so in this text, I think is worth saying a few things. The verses that I'm kind of zeroing in on in 11 through 20 um, are set in a context. Um, Paul's been traveling around uh, ever since his conversion, essentially. He's been going to places that he felt the gospel needed to go. And so here he finds himself in Ephesus on the heels of somebody that has come from Ephesus. In fact, at the end of Acts chapter 18, you're introduced to this guy named Apollos who apparently has just come from Ephesus to somewhere else. 
and he's teaching the word of the Lord accurately. Now, you, you find out that he's kind of missing a piece of the gospel or a piece of the message, and he's taught about that. And the thing that he's missing is he hasn't been teaching about being baptized into the Lord Jesus's uh, name. He's just been teaching the baptism of John, which is accurate. Like that was a teaching from the Lord. John had been sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. And so it seems like Apollos did what he could with what he knew. But he didn't know all of the story. And so he's kind of pulled aside and said, hey, like Jesus has been resurrected. You know, you can imagine them saying things like this. Hey, Jesus has been resurrected. Forgiveness is in his name now. So you need to be teaching about baptism into Jesus. And so they pull him aside. And it seems like he takes that uh, with humility. It seems like he moves forward from there. And so in Acts chapter 19, when Paul gets to Ephesus, he finds believers at the beginning of the chapter, but they only know the baptism of John because of people like Apollos. That's all they've been taught. And so when you read at the beginning of this chapter, um, the way that Paul actually figures out that they haven't uh, been baptized into Jesus is he asks them, them actually, do you know about the Holy Spirit? And they're like, no, what is that? Like, we don't know about that. They, he says that... Um, in verse 2 of chapter 19. Did you receive the Spirit? And they say, we haven't heard of this. And that's when Paul kind of backs up and is like, well, who, like, what was your baptism about? And they say that they've been baptized into John's baptism. And so in verse 4, Paul says, well, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, right? Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus, and so you can only imagine, like, the logical progression here. He was like, well, yeah, that for a time had its place because it was pointing to Jesus. And you can imagine then Paul saying, but, but you know, Jesus came and now we're baptized into his name for not only for our repentance, but for forgiveness and for the spirit and all these other things that come with that. Because look at what happens in verse 5. They're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul lays their, his hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit and they're able to do some of these these works of the Holy Spirit. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm laying this kind of down before we get into Acts 19, 11 through 20 is because everything I'm going to say is contingent on having done this. Um, I don't know everyone in this room. We have some visitors. We have some people that I haven't met before, and I'm thankful that you're here. And so just know that I'm saying this just kind of to cover my bases, um, not to single anyone out, but... If this is you, if you haven't done this part yet, Acts 19 at the beginning, if you haven't been baptized in the Lord Jesus' name for forgiveness and for the Spirit and all these things that were promised, then this is the part that maybe you should start with. Because everything that I'm going to talk about in 11 through 20 hinges on this being a reality in your life. Um, so just think about that. Be honest about it. Um, that's not me. You know, telling you my opinion on it, that's just what the text shows us is necessary for anything else in chapter 19 to actually, to actually have happened. That had to have happened first. So be honest with yourself about that. And as we go through this text, we see that they receive the Holy Spirit, that there's about 12 men, it says here, that believe 
um, and have received gifts in verses 6 and 7. So it's a small group. I mean, you can almost imagine a room kind of like this. I didn't count up how many people are here today, but it's, what, 15 or 16 maybe. Um, So a room kind of like this is the crowd that we're talking about initially. And they've received the gifts. And so it goes on to say that in Ephesus, after this happens, Paul's continuing to do amazing things by the hand of God. Like stuff you haven't even really heard about happening since Jesus, really. Like not only were there healings, which are miracles in and of themselves, the nature of their healings were so powerful that garments are being passed around. And like garments that Paul had had like power in them sort of and that's like what happened with jesus people would just like touch his clothes and they would be healed this is an amazing scene and that's what's happening in verses 11 and 12 and so as it seems always happens there's people that try to take advantage of this um i don't know who these guys are the sons of skiva i don't know how you say that name um but there's a couple of these sons here it says seven of them and it also describes them as itinerant jewish exorcists so it sounds like they make their living traveling around doing this kind of stuff or at least claiming to have done this kind of stuff and i'm going to make some assumptions here and so just know that they're assumptions they're opinions um even if you're a half uh, glass half full kind of person maybe they're doing this out of ignorance and they think hey this is good stuff let us take part in it probably not exactly how they're doing this but even if that's your position they're stepping out of what is their role they're stepping out of what they have authority to do because specifically when they try to copy paul and they even say we adjure you by it says in this text uh jesus whom paul proclaims in verse 13 even the spirits, and I don't, I can't imagine how this would unfold. Imagine being in, in this scene. Even the spirits respond to them and say, we don't know who you are, right? Um, that's not like Paul is within earshot and he's like, hey, what are you doing? The spirits themselves are saying like, what are you doing? Like, you don't have any authority here. We know Jesus. We know Paul. Like, who are you? Right? And consequently, what ends up happening is a, a very embarrassing, hurtful thing is basically the spirits like come at them and overpower them and apparently injure them to some degree and not only that somehow get them naked like this is a really embarrassing scene that they think they're going to come in and have power over the spirits but because um they haven't been given authority the spirits have power over them right so this is a great reversal of what's assumed to happen here I wanted to kind of lay all that groundwork to get to the part of this that I want to talk about, and that is what's going on with those that are in Christ in those moments. You'll notice in this text, not only are these itinerant Jewish exorcists, these sons of Sceva, unable, incapable to do what they anticipated being able to do, not only are they overcome and hurt and they run away naked, Even worse than maybe all of this for them personally is that everybody hears about it, right? Like sometimes that's the worst injury is like maybe not that you like trip and fall. It's like tripping and falling in a room full of people, right? Everybody hears about like what happened. And that's where the focus shifts in this narrative from those guys back to 
believers, those who have been baptized into the Lord Jesus' name. And look at what it says about them in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued uh, to increase and prevail mightily. I've never, ever in my life been a part of anything that looked quite like this. Um, I think part of that circumstantial, I've never been around a lot of magic practicers or anything like that. Like, I don't imagine this exact parallel situation unfolding in my life. My life, maybe it will someday. But what's amazing about this is once people kind of hear the news about these sons of Sceva being kind of run out, the product of that is not what I would have anticipated. Um, I do anticipate fear happening, but I don't necessarily assume when I first, if I were to stop at verse 16, that fear would produce what it produces in this chapter. Um, but it says fear falls upon them all, and consequently the name of the Lord is extolled. Um, the name of the Lord, specifically Jesus even, is extolled. Think about what's happened. This guy, these guys, these sons, try to cast out some sort of spirit or evil thing in someone else, exercise this demon, so to speak, in someone by the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, on one hand, it didn't happen. So part of me thinks, well, like, why, why the extolling of Jesus' name when it failed to happen? Right? Like he, they didn't actually exercise anything. But the facet of the story that's important is that what the Spirit says when they, when they try to do it is like, hey, we know Jesus, we know Paul, and we don't know who you are. I zeroed in on the failing of them, but I think what I should have zeroed in when I read this story, zeroed in on, is what the spirit says back and i think when this story was circulating that must have been the part that got people's attention otherwise the rest of the story doesn't make sense the people have realized that the lord jesus has power that paul even has authority or power and because they see these guys run out of town, the only thing that's left for them to do is to, to praise the name of the Lord Jesus for the power that he has. Um, so what I want to see in this is um, really the portrait of those who believe in this, this text. And I'm not even sure everyone that's praising right now is even considered a believer in the truest sense because of the way this text unfolds. It becomes known to everybody and Jesus' name is extolled. It doesn't mean everybody was baptized and became a believer and modeled their life after Jesus. But Jesus is getting a lot of praise in this moment. What a weird thing to see Jesus getting praise and like kind of a negative thing. Um, I don't know about your experiences, um, but I feel like 
one of the characteristics or part of the nature of God that's least desirable among people is his authority or the, the, the command that God might have in your life or over things. Or even in light of that, like the respect or the fear that comes with understanding that God has that. Um, people generally don't like to think about God being someone that you revere or that you can even fear in any capacity or that he actually tells you what to do and you should do that even when you disagree with it. But that's the thing that seems to cause everything else to happen in chapter 19, like in this part of the text. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, think about this. What was the, the factor that pushed you to finally obey? Like for me, when I think about that, I knew about God's love and I knew about his mercy and I appreciated those things. But the bottom line when I first finally made a movement in my life was I'm scared to go to hell. I'm scared like I'm going to be judged as sinful, right? Like, And I think what we're seeing in this chapter is not necessarily that the only thing that we should ever dwell on about God is our fear or respect of him. That's a big part of it. Nor should it be necessarily even like the negative things we see happen to people that resist God or do something that they don't have authority to do. But oftentimes it's that spark that gets things going. Um, And it's fair because clearly that is true about God. Like he is someone to be feared and like to step outside of the authority of God is something that will hurt you. Right. And so I, I see that as beneficial, that we revere or we fear the Lord. And that is oftentimes the place we start, right? Many, meaningful change is born from a, 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 a true reverence of the Lord. But that's not where this stops. In verse 17, as I mentioned earlier, the Lord Jesus was extolled. You might even say, like, was praised or uh that is oftentimes what is emphasized in, in reaction to God is like to praise him. And fairly so because that is even the result in this sense or in this story. And so the question that I'm going to ask for you to think about is, first of all, do you have a reverence for the Lord? And second of all, does it move you to praise the name of, of Jesus? Um, if it doesn't, then there's something wrong somewhere. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that might be. I think there's a couple ways to think about that. One is if you're not praising the name of the Lord, maybe you just have a heart problem, like you're calloused or not observant or honest. Maybe it's your fear, your reverence of the Lord moves you to to fear because you're not actually right with God. And like, so it's hard for you to praise God because you're not in a place where you have peace and joy and the blessings, right? Whatever it may be, the sequence should be, and God has provided a path for you revering him and allowing that to move into praise. Because you don't have to be fearful. You don't have to remain unsure. You don't have to be uh, questioning, you know, when I see something that God does, that is something that produces fear. It's not something that I should worry about coming on me because I've been baptized in the Lord Jesus and I'm forgiven and I'm living 
appropriately and in the light of God's teaching. So the question for us is, do you praise God for the things he's done? Or are you still stuck in fear? Can you look at the fear, the fearful things of the Lord and give him praise for those? Is that your gut reaction to praise God when you experience the things of God? Whether they are people fearfully running away or if it is something we might call good. Either way is your reaction to extol the name of the Lord Jesus. When you get to verse 18, um, it says many of those who are now believers came. Uh, Are you a believer? And what I mean by that is a whole lot of stuff. I think the Bible talks about belief in a whole lot of different ways. Um, Some of you have heard me say this before, but I think the best way to think about belief is like a suitcase. And when you unpack it, there's a lot to it. Um, you know, belief in some senses, right? Like we think about it as, as faith, like as a set of things that I trust is true, right? But on the other hand, it's like this verb or this thing that I put into action in my life, right? Like it's this, because of these set of values that I hold as true, I've changed or I've modeled my life in some respects in light of that. And that pushes me to do specific things or to, to not do other things, right? So belief is kind of this big word that has a lot of meaning. Are you a believer in every sense of the word? Because it's, it describes in verse 18, many of those who are believers, right? Do you revere the Lord? Do you praise the Lord? And are you a believer? Because if you haven't, like believed if you don't revere the lord and you can't praise the lord and you're not really a believer then everything else that comes out of the next part of this verse is not going to apply to you it's not going to make sense it's not going to be something that you can even really participate in with any kind of meaning or value so you need to ask yourself do i believe would god say i'm a believer all right so in verse 18 after the fear has fallen upon them, after they extol the name of the Lord, after it mentions that believers are the ones that are about to do this stuff that we read of, it says that they, they came confessing and divulging their practices. Um, there's a lot, I think, to pull out of this. I'm not sure I'm even going to get everything we could out of it, but a couple things that I want to notice is that they, they came, or you might even say they came together, The fear of the Lord and the praise of the Lord and the fact that they believe have all kind of melded or convalesced. All those things have come together to produce in them this. The fact that they are willing to come together. And the thing that they're coming together to do, we might often describe as negative things. Like to have to, like we will even say this, to have to confess. Like I have to confess. Like I'm motivated by negative thing like i've realized a mistake i'm i'm fearful of the results of it i feel guilty and so like we say confess but i see this as a really positive thing the fear of the lord their belief their praise of god has moved them to do what is necessary right if god teaches you something if he reveals a truth through his word to you and you realize i don't do that 
I haven't done that. In fact, I've even modeled my life in a way that goes against that. And this is necessary. And it's a positive step. It's not to be viewed as negative. In fact, they all come together and they do it. They confess. They divulge their practice or um, confess their practices would be even a fair way to say that. Do you do you do that? If you're a believer sitting in this room today, do you confess when you realize something's wrong in your life? Are you willing even to to come together to do that? Um, there's a lot of teaching in the Bible that talks about confession, and biblically, there's all kinds of confession actually. Um, on one hand, I can confess Jesus' name. Like, I believe in him. That's a confession. Like, no, not everybody makes that confession, right? On another hand, I can confess to the Lord certain things, even in my prayer life or my, my personal quiet time. Like, I can have a discourse with God that is a confession, and that's between me and God. But in this text, it's like a very public, shared confession, which is something that I'm far, personally, I'm far less comfortable with. I'm much more concerned about, like, my appearance and, like, the reputation that might come from confessing certain things or being honest. or And coming together to do that is particularly scary. Maybe I can pick one or two of you to kind of come together and do that. And sometimes that's good and helpful. But in this scene, it's like, seems like it's a lot of people coming together and, they realize they all sort of have the same problems and mistakes and that they're kind of opening up to that and saying, yeah, like we've messed up. God's obviously showing us this is not the way forward. Like we need to come together. We need to be honest with each other. We need to change things. Do you do that? Have you done that? Is that a part of your life as a believer? If it hasn't been, if it hasn't been because you're unwilling because you're not honest with yourself or maybe you've, you know, you felt that I don't have anything to confess or I'm not going to confess or I don't, I don't want to confess. Um, that's a problem because I believe what God is showing to us in this text is this is what repentance is. Repentance is one of those things that I like many spiritual things, I have a hard time sometimes like saying, what is that? Like, how do I grab onto that and do it or live it or, or trust it or, or live, uh, live in light of it? Repentance here in this text looks like confessing and divulging. But it doesn't end there. It says, in fact, that as this moves forward, they burn their books. I think there's a lot of different ways you can talk about this that evoke or remind us of other <laughs> teachings throughout the Bible. Um, I think this is an example of what it is to commit to making godly changes, which is to repent. I think it's also a great example in a practical way of what it looks like to destroy your old self. Um, the Bible talks a lot about that, like when you're baptized into Christ— the old you is buried in baptism. And the imagery is, talks about in Romans chapters 5 and then into 6, 
The imagery is when you come out of that baptism into the Lord's name, you arise just as Jesus arose from the dead, a new creation, new person. And the figure of speech and the imagery and the symbolism of that is everything that died is left dead. And then when you come up in a new creation, resurrected into a new life, you leave all that stuff behind. I think in practical terms, we're seeing it happen in Acts chapter 19. If you've ever wondered, how do I do that? What does that look like? You realize, you confess, you divulge like, hey, I've got mistakes. I'm doing things wrong. Confess it, divulge it. And then burn the books. Like, don't give yourself a way back. This this passage was particularly helpful for me some years ago, um, putting real change into practice in my life. I just, uh, I won't go into all the details, but this showed me what it looks like to really want to change. Like I take out whatever measures that I could have to pedal back on away. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting uh, that it says that those who practice the magic arts in verse 19, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. Like it wasn't a private burning. I don't want to make too much, you know, like make too much of a small thing, but I think it's important that people not only saw the burning of the books, a lot of people participated in it. And not only did they see it and participate in it, it is, seems like um, everybody did. Like it was like a communal thing. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced confessing a sin to another person. At first, it's like super nerve-wracking and embarrassing. Um and if you have the humility that you should have, it shouldn't be those things. But oftentimes when you find yourself in that position, it's probably been for somewhat of lack of a humility up to that point. So you find yourself embarrassed and you're really nervous about it. And then when you say it, there's kind of like this initial wave of relief that it's like off your chest and it's kind of out in the open in a sense. But what you'll often find is that when you do that, there are other people that join you in it. Like you'll say, oh, I've made this mistake. I've sinned in this way. And then oftentimes in my experience, the person that you're telling is like, yeah, me too. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Now I'm in a different situation. I imagine that's kind of how this got going. Like one person said, magic books aren't right. Another person said, yeah, you're right. And it kept rolling until everybody got to the point where they were like, we need to like talk to each other about this and we need to burn some books. (laughs) Right? It establishes not only what is true and right in your life in light of God, but it brings about community and fellowship when you pursue true things together. Um, And it's in light of all of these things um, that we also see that doing what what is right costs a lot. I think that's probably why that whole bit about how much these books are worth is there. Um, it reminds me, and I think Blake brought this up Wednesday night, and I think it was a good point, and so I'm going to share what he said, or elaborate on it. I hope I'm not putting too many words in your mouth. But he brought up just the rich young ruler in Luke 18, and I thought that's a great parallel to this text. It's a negative one, though. When that guy comes to Jesus and he's like, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I mean, what better question could you ask the son of God? 
Like if you get one question, that's the question to ask, right? So he nails it. His problem wasn't the question that he asked. The problem was the heart in which he asked it. When Jesus said, yeah, you know, give up all your stuff, sell it to the poor and just come follow me. The guy gets really sad because he had a lot of stuff. And the way the story unfolds makes you think that was just kind of where it ended. Like he went on his way. Um, And so then the the disciples that are following Jesus, having heard this conversation unfold with this guy, they're like, well, man, it's really hard to get, you know, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus says is, well, yeah, but with God, all things are possible. Right. All things are possible. That guy was not willing to pay the price to follow Jesus. That was kind of his hang up he thought his stuff was more valuable than the stuff jesus had to offer him and so he chose his stuff in this text in acts chapter 19 thankfully we have a positive example of people counting their stuff as insignificant in light of what was true um actually when you read the book the chapter 19 we're not going to read all this but what happens after verse 20 is the whole town gets in an uproar basically because they realize, hey, a lot of people are giving up their idolatry and their sorcery. And that's going to hurt the economic viability of our city. In fact, the guy that kind of instigates it all was a guy who made little statues of their princess Diana, and princess goddess Diana, uh, in silver. And he's like, look, my business is hurting. Right? Well, that's, it mattered to him because he hadn't wrestled with what was true. It didn't matter to everybody in the verses that we're reading because they have seen what was true. And so now what's it matter about books and silver goddesses and whatever? Like, let's just burn it all and like, let's move on with our lives. Right. Do you count the cost as insignificant Do you count it as insignificant, whatever your cost is? I doubt it's magic books for you. Maybe it is. I don't know. But whatever it is in your life that you value, that God is telling you is not right, are you willing to give that thing up? It's only when we are. It's only when we revere the Lord. It's only when we're praising him for his deeds. It's only when we believe It's only when we come together over common belief. It's only when we are willing to confess. It's only when we divulge our practices. It's only when we commit to making changes and destroying the old way of life. It's only when we encourage others to do the same. It's only when we are willing to pay that cost. When all those things come together, you know what it produces? It produces verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's not that God's word ever fails to do that Um, i don't want to give that impression like if you if i were to not do any of this stuff described in acts 19 the word of the lord has still prevailed it's still mighty but it hasn't prevailed in my life it hasn't produced positive change for me it'll prevail in other people's lives and it'll do exactly what it's going to do because god describes his word as a sword right It cuts through all the stuff. It gets to the heart. It gets to the soul. And the people that 
are humble enough to, to hear that, it'll do this for them. But in a practical sense, I think what verse 20 is telling us in this place and in this moment, the word of the Lord was prevailing and was shown as mighty. When I don't do this stuff, it's not shown as that. Like, If I'm not repenting and I'm not believing and I'm not doing all this stuff, then the word of the Lord isn't of any consequence to anybody in that community and in that place. And even though God said that his word is always successful, it either produces belief in someone or it produces rejection. That's what God designed it to do. In this moment, it's being shown as strong. It's being shown as worthy. It's being shown as meaningful and true. So the question for all of us is, is the word mighty in you? Would God look down on your your life right now in this moment and be able to kind of pin verse 20 about you. When he looks at uh, Robin, does he say the word is prevailing and mighty in him? When he looks at Blake, does he say the word is mighty and prevailing in Blake? Um, I can't answer that question for you. Only you and the Lord can kind of know what's going on with that. Um, And if you haven't been baptized in the Lord's name... If you haven't done everything we've talked about in verses 11 and 20, repented and confessed and kind of burned those old bridges and are moving forward in faith, then I think Acts 19 is telling us that statement's not true about you. And so I'd encourage you today to think about that, to pray about it, to be honest with yourself, because the only one that's going to be shortchanged if you're not honest about it is you. At the end of the day, as much as I want to see you do the right thing, it's not going to affect my walk with God if you don't. Um, And so be honest about it. I'd encourage you to think about it while Robin leads us in this song.